0: Happy Easter, everybody. That was really quiet. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> what a beautiful, beautiful sunny morning. I, uh, I love it when Easter um, falls on a day that is uh, a beautiful spring day, because there's something about spring that just so perfectly captures what Easter is all about um as we move from the death of winter in which everything especially in michigan in which everything seems cold and lifeless and gray and uh, and we move into spring and we start to see the flowers come out and the trees bud and all of those different things. It's just a picture of what Easter is all about. What was dead coming back to life in that particular way. So I'm excited to be with you all this morning. Uh, if you're new here and you don't know who I am, my name's Brent. I'm the lead pastor here. Um, if you're new with us in this community, we'd love to get to know you a little bit as well. Uh, in front of you in the pews, there's just a little card that says hello. Um, if you fill that out and put it in the box in the back, um, we can. Uh, it'll, it'll help us stay in contact with you. So that would be wonderful. Um, Easter Sunday is, is obviously uh, in the church world one of the, the biggest, most important Sundays of the year. It's my favorite because it's one where we get to focus on a on, on new life, like we already said, that the tomb is empty, that, that, uh, that the hope of the gospel is just on full display on Easter morning. Um, <clears throat> And so I actually want to open us with prayer, and then we'll dive into to what we've got prepared this morning. I'm really excited to share with you. So will you pray with me one more time. Father God, I just want to thank you for uh, for for this morning again, Lord. I pray that uh, as we approach your word, as we especially as we look back into the book of Genesis, Lord, that you can re- that you can speak to each of us wherever we may be, uh, whatever we take into. Uh, to the church service this morning, whatever needs to die or whatever we feel is dead already, Lord, may new life be breathed back into it. May we see your word anew. May we experience you in a new way. May we have the hope of moving forward into a new, uh, new day today and all the days to come. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. So Easter Sunday is one of those Sundays that as a pastor, the more you do, the harder it can be sometimes to write an Easter message because you're preaching on the same topic every single year, obviously, Easter. Um, And so to come try to figure out a new angle at it can be tricky. Um, But this year, I'm really excited because I... uh, Every once in a while, um, something totally brand new pops out, and the connections in the Scripture uh, are made clear, and that's what happened this year. Um, and it actually fell perfectly in line—you uh, can call it providential, you can call it whatever you like—with uh, the Genesis series that we're already in. Uh, it was one of those things that we, ca- when we were wrestling with—so uh, two years ago, when we did Matthew, uh, we realized that we needed to pause for a minute to jump ahead to the Easter story. And so when we were first planning out our series for this year, we asked the same question— Do we need to pause Genesis to shoot forward to the Easter story? Uh, But then as we started mapping out where we were going to be, we realized that the story that that we landed in in Genesis actually kicks off Easter, way back in Genesis 15. Uh, So I'm really excited to talk to to you through all of that. You may be wondering, how in the world are we going to do Easter out of Genesis? Hopefully by the end, you'll see where we're going. I'm going to do two things. One is I'm going to try to not hit my head on this. So if I do... I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen, but I hope I won't. Um, and two, I'll try to walk you through those spaces. But if you're new to Harbor Life, what we've done uh, for the year 2023 is we've been slowly working our way through the book of Genesis. Uh, we started at the beginning of the year, and we've made it to Genesis 15 at this point. Now, if you, if you haven't been with us, there's been a whole bunch of themes that we've seen run, the, run throughout Genesis, and we can't go through all of those this morning. That's not going to work. But there's one in particular Um, that I do want to focus on and remind us all of, because I think it matters so much for our story today, in particular how that story relates to Easter. What we've seen throughout the book of Genesis is we've seen that God created humanity to be with him, to flourish in in, in, in the garden that he created for them, to flourish in the kind of life that he made for them alongside of him. We saw right away at the beginning of Genesis, though, that we have progressively failed to do that. Uh, whether it's Genesis 3 in the, in the story of the fall, the story of Adam and Eve in the fall, or whether it's the story of Cain or the story of Noah, over and over and over again, we've seen how humans have fallen short to, uh, of living, up, living into the kind of life that God desires for us. But what we've also seen in each of those stories is that God has aggressively pursued us even in our failures, so the story of Adam and Eve, they fall in Genesis 3. By the end of the story, God's already making them clothes to care for them. Or the story of Cain, God comes to Cain and says, Hey, I know what you're thinking. Sin's crouching at your door. Please don't do what you want to do. Cain does it anyway, and then God says, Actually, here's the restoration path. Now Cain fails to do that as well. The story of Noah is the same thing. He pursues Noah in that way, both, both before the flood and after. We see God's pursuit in the Tower of Babel and we've seen it with Abraham as well. This idea that God is constantly chasing us down through the book of Genesis in that way. And so we want to hold on to that today um, because, one, that theme will continue as we continue through the entirety of the Old Testament, particularly the book of Genesis. But it also matters a lot for the story that we're going to read this morning. So, One of the big things whenever we're at Easter is we're going to talk, obviously, about the crucifixion and the resurrection. And At Harbor Life, again, if you're new here, one of the things that we're always trying to do is we're trying to ask the hard questions of our faith. We realize that that as we grow in faith, we go from an elementary kind of understanding of faith to a deeper one, and that raises a lot of questions for us. We wrestle with a lot of things that maybe we've taken for granted, uh, and now we have to ask really hard questions, and that always happens on Easter as well. Because as we go look at the story of Easter, the question that inevitably comes up is, why did Jesus have to die? Right, we sang about blood and broken bodies and things like that this morning, but it's just kind of a strange concept altogether. Now, if you've never asked yourself that question before, why did Jesus have to die? It's one that we're going to be talking about this morning. My guess is if I was to poll the congregation here, if anybody brave enough to answer the question, why did Jesus have to die? No one's going to be. That's fine. I figured that would be the case. To take, so take our place or to die for our sins. That's actually that's what I got written down. That's what I figured would be the general answer. Thank you, Richard. Uh, thanks for what's that? Fulfill the covenants. Another one of those things, right? It's these ideas that he has to. He's it's that Jesus dies for, for the sake of our sins. Is the most common answer that we that we answer. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's that's true. But if we slow down for a second. Um, there, there, we realize that there's some difficult layers with that particular kind of, uh, of response. Why did Jesus have to die to forgive us for our sins? I agree with that. But why did he have to die to do that? It's a tricky question when we really start to think about it, right? If my kids make mistakes, and sometimes they do, I don't say, I love you and I'll forgive you, um, but I'm going to have to kill your brother first, or sister, in my case. I have two girls, right? It's just not something that happens, right? That's a weird thing to say. It's a weird thing to even think about. It's a weird thing to kind of wrestle with. I love you, I forgive you, but this person's going to have to take it for you. But that's the question we're going to explore today on Easter Sunday. And we're going to do it from Genesis, like I said. So before we can get going, we are jumping into the middle of the story. We've been working for the last couple weeks through the story of a man named Abram, who eventually becomes Abraham. Abraham. Uh, who is known as the father of the Jewish nation, uh, the Jewish faith in that particular way. We also, he's also claimed by Muslims as the father of Islam as well. So you've got both of those things. He's an important person inside of the biblical story. We've so, we saw a couple weeks ago how Abram Abraham had been called out of a place called Ur, um, which, is a, which is a place that, that was a polytheistic place right around uh, the, where Babylon is today or modern-day Iraq. Um, he was called out of that space and has been progressively working his way towards uh, Canaan, where God had called him to. We also had talked about how God had given Abraham a promise. He said, I'm going to turn you into a, make you into a great nation. You're going to be, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to be with you in all of these big and special ways. But the problem is, by the time we get to chapter 15, God has been walking with Abraham, but he's 99 years old and he doesn't have any children which is a problem if you're going to become a great nation, right? And so that's where we pick up our story today. Genesis, if you have a Bible or would like to follow wrong, we'll be in Genesis 15 for most of what we're doing today. And it says this After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the, one who, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. So we're going to stop there for just a second. God's promised to bless Abraham. We've already said that. And then he it, it comes to him in a vision. And he knows Abram's upset at this particular point that he's wrestling with some different things. And, Abram, and so he says, don't be afraid. I'm with you. I'll be your shield. I'll protect you. I'm going to keep walking with you just like I have before. But Abram's response tells us a whole lot about where his headspace is at this particular time. Essentially, he looks at God and what he says is, hey, thanks for that. I'm glad you're with me. Um, But uh, I've left everything to follow you. I've left my legacy, I've left family, I've left all of these particular things. And you said you're gonna make me into a great nation. How are we gonna pull that off? I'm 99 years old, I don't have any children. Looks like everything that I own or possess is going to go to Eliezer, who's not even one of my family members. So, what, what's the deal? Essentially, is what Abraham is saying. Abraham's, Abraham's concerned. He's perhaps even angry. And actually, the fact that he doubles up in the next verse, in verse three, Abram said, You've given me two children, so a servant of my household will be my heir. You can feel the edge on that a little bit. Hey, you made a promise to me, it doesn't look like it's coming through. Uh, what are we going to do? How are we going to pull this thing off? Well, the story continues. Verse 4. The word of the Lord, then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars. If indeed you can count them, he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you the land and take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon an interesting little section to stop in there, but I, want to, I don't want to read past it too quickly. Because I think there are often times, as we read through the Old Testament, in which we're forced to think, huh, that's kind of weird, uh, and that's kind of what we're looking at this morning, right? <clears throat> uh, Abra- or just what's going on in this particular space. Abram is concerned that he doesn't have any kids, and he's looking for some affirmation from God uh, that his promises are actually going to come to fruition. And so God says, okay, I can give you that. I'm going to need a heifer, I'm going to need a goat, I'm going to need a ram, a dove, and a pigeon. you can just go get those real quick for me. And, you're, and Abram's like, okay, what? Like, Imagine if somebody asked you for that list of things. Uh, we, it's a pretty weird list, right? Which forces us in our, in our context to go, okay, that's pretty weird, but look what happens when Abram does it in verse 10. It says Abram bought all these things to him, and he cut them into two and arranged the halves opposite of each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, and Abram, Abram drove them away. That makes it totally clears it up, right? You all get it now? <laughs> yeah. It's a weird passage. Abraham goes and Abram gets the things that God asked for, and immediately slices them up into pieces and makes a kind of path, which obviously takes an already strange passage we were reading and makes it a little bit stranger. But, I don't know if you noticed this when we read it through, is that what's strange to us in this particular passage doesn't seem to be strange to Abram at all, does it? God tells him to get a goat, a heifer, a pigeon, and a dove. I'm missing one. A ram, there we go. God tells him to get all of those things, uh, but then that's all he tells him, and as soon as Abram does, he, on his own accord, he just cuts them in half. Clearly, he knew what God wanted him to do already. He understood what was happening here and, and set the thing into motion. Now I want to pause here for just a second, because I think so many times, uh, especially if you're new to faith, you can read through the Bible and you go, hey, there's some really weird and messed up stuff in there. One of these passages actually might even be part of what pushes you in that direction. What are we doing cutting up animals and making this kind of path? I know that for some people, these kind of passages can actually make it hard to follow God if you don't understand what's going on. Because you're like, what in the world do I do with this kind of weird thing? Honestly, even if you've been in church forever, sometimes stories like this get us thinking, what am I doing here? The fact is, the Bible has weird stuff in it, but I would argue mostly because people are weird. <laughs> what I mean by that? This, what's going on in this passage here is part of Abram's culture. Like I already mentioned, he knew exactly what to do. This is not a new thing that God invented. This is a thing that God accommodates on behalf of Abram because Abram's going to know what it means. Sure, this passage is weird, but not exclusively to the Bible weird, just exclusive to ancient history weird. Go ahead and search, uh, do any research on ancient history, and I promise you, you will be constantly weirded out by what people used to do. Uh, A lot of it it was really messed up. Now, it is easy for us, then, to roll our eyes around ancient culture's weirdness, to go, clearly, they were messed up, but we're not. But I'd like to propose this. In 2,000 years from now, from the the deck of the Enterprise or something, we're we're out in space at this point, what would people think about us in 2023 if they were just to look through our social media feeds? Right? They, just get, they get a TikTok from right now, right, where we've got, a, you know, people are dancing, doing TikTok right, challenges or whatever, or, when you, or some of the other crazy things that we have done uh, over, over the course of the last few years, right? And it, not even, some of them are really destructive, some of them are just ridiculous, uh, but we do really strange things, don't we? Or, or just if they got a hold of just Instagram filters where we can make our faces look like horses or aliens or something like that, and they'd be like, what are these people doing? And yet for us, it's totally normal, right? Or the rage that we see on Twitter, all the people just yelling at each other in that space. But it also doesn't start with social media either. If you want to under how weird we are, go to a frat party sometime, right? The different ways we've invented to be ridiculous, is is insane, right? You you got a beer bong, beer pong, you've got all these different things. It's like those faces are strange things to do, and yet we we do them in that way. The point, or even just some of our traditions around Easter itself, right? How many of you did an Easter egg hunt at all over the last few bits? Okay. So 2,000 years from now, the way we're going to describe that is that there's a magical bunny who gives you eggs with candy inside of them. And without context, you go, what in the world is happening here? The, the, it's a lot of words to make the point that I'm making. For, uh, for us, looking back at what Abram was doing is incredibly strange. But it's because we don't have the context around it. To him, it was normal. For, for 2,000 years from now, a magical bunny with eggs may be really, really weird to people that live in that space. But it makes sense to us. Okay. <clears> okay. <throat> I guess one more point that I forgot to make in the midst of that. I actually think that that we can get caught up in the weirdness of, of the different parts of Scripture. But I actually, for me, I find it to be really comforting. The fact that people are weird, that we do weird things, that we've done weird things through thousands of years, and yet God continually pursues us in the midst of all of that weird. I think the fact that God used something that Abraham already knew, even though probably weird to him as well, just like all the other weird things that we did so that he could meet him in his space and speak to him in a way that he could understand, I actually think is really beautiful. So there are a couple different ways we can read those things, but, um, but, I, think, but I, I choose to read it through the lens of God coming to Abraham to accommodate him in that space. But that does still bring us back to this, the point that we're... Or that does bring us back to, the, to needing to figure out what's going on here. What, what is happening? What is the deal with these particular animals? Well, on Abram's day... When two people engaged in a promise or a covenant, right, maybe you've heard both of those words, promise, covenant, contract, are all similar ideas, Uh, they would signify the importance of their agreement with something known as a blood path, which is what we're looking at now, and it sounds morbid and it kind of of was, but this is how it worked. You you had two parties that each would make promises to each other. You do this thing and I'll do this thing. We're both going to commit to something. And so to signify the value of that promise, they'd take animals, they'd split them in half, like we just saw Abram do, uh, and then each party would walk down the middle of that particular path. Now, the, the, um, the animals on either side would also have a little groove down the middle, so the blood would come off the animals and run through the groove in the center. So you'd actually be walking on the blood itself through this whole thing. I get it, it's gross, but it was what they did back then. Uh, not just in the scriptures either, we've seen these across ancient cultures, so they would place one animal on each half of the side of the ditch, the blood would run through the middle, and then each party would walk through the center. Essentially, what they were doing is they were, saying, they were saying, "We're cutting a blood path covenant with each other, or, in today's language, be signing on the dotted line or shaking a hand or making a contract in that way. And after they cut the animals, they would both walk through the blood, signifying, "If I don't keep my end of this bargain, maybe ha- may what happened to these animals happen to me." Right? the promise that they're making with each other. They're saying, as I walk through the middle of this, as soon as my, my foot hits the blood, I'm saying, if I don't keep the promises that I've made, you can split me in half, or essentially you can kill me, right? That's what, that's what this particular deal is signifying. It was, just, it, it, it's the, it, was, it was, you didn't do this with every single contract, but you did it with very, very serious ones so that if one party broke, it would often cause violence, So what we see here in this particular passage, then, is God is asking Abram to bring some animals. Abram understands immediately what's about to happen. Now, like we said, a covenant requires two parties, each of which making a promise. So what are the terms of the covenant we're looking at here? First, we saw earlier on in the book of Genesis that God had made a promise to Abram. Um, He made a a promise to give him land, to give him children, to make him into a great nation, to bless him in those particular ways. Now, throughout Scripture, does God keep his deal? He does. He does both physically. The nation of Israel exists. Abraham, we will see in a few chapters, does get a son. uh, His name is Isaac. That becomes the birth of the Jewish people. The fact of the matter is, we still have quite a few Jewish people around today. So clearly, God did... Make Abraham into a great nation, but also spiritually as well. Because even the church itself, God, it says in Scripture, uh, like in Second Peter two, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. The church has been included into Abraham's legacy as well. So God has kept His part of the deal. But what's Abraham's or Abram's end of the covenant? And we actually get that a little bit later in the story. If you go to Genesis seventeen one, it says when Abram was ninety nine years old. The Lord appeared to him and said, "I am the God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and blameless. Then I will make my Then I will make my covenant between me and you, and will greatly increase your number." So God's side of the deal is, I will give you land. I will give you a nation. I'll turn you into a great nation. I will be with you in those particular ways. Abraham's end of the covenant is to walk before him blamelessly, to be righteous in every way. And we already said that for God to keep his side of the covenant, he did it. He he, he did those things. But for Abram, though, can he actually keep his end of the covenant? It's impossible, right? There's no way he could do that. So then why does God put Abram in that position? In order to answer that question, we need to continue just a little bit further in our story. Picking back up at 1512. As the sun was setting... Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And the Lord said to him, Know for certain that in 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country that's not their own, which is the foreshadowing of Egypt and the slavery there. And they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish that nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried in old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Now, this is the important part. Verse 17: When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. So again, a strange passage, but with a ton of significance. Abram falls into a deep sleep. Inside of his sleep, he can see the path that he has just made, and he sees uh, a a smoking pot and a torch. Now, we've mentioned this early on in Genesis. The first readers of the book of Genesis are probably the newly freed slaves from Egypt. We believe Moses probably wrote Genesis, which means they were the first ones. In that culture already, God has set up this symbol that God has set up for his representation on earth has already been established as being smoke and fire, Right? So a, n- a number of different ways God expresses himself in that way. So for instance, in the Exodus, right, the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness. How does God lead them? By a cloud during the day and by a pillar of fire at night, smoke and fire. When God comes down on F- Sinai, it says that there's a, deep, there's a smoke that covers the top of Sinai with fire coming out of the middle of it. It's clearly a representation of God moving through this space. So what we have here is we have, we have then God representing himself with a smoking pot and a torch walking through the middle of this blood path that Abram's created. But as we've already mentioned, when you make a blood covenant, a blood path covenant, both parties are supposed to walk through the center of the path you've created, both saying, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, may what happened to these animals happen to me. In the story that we just read, though, does Abram ever walk through the path He doesn't, meaning what's being symbolized here is that God is taking both parts of the covenant upon himself. If God doesn't give the land and children to Abram, he would break his end of the covenant, meaning death. But that's not all. What God is signifying here is that if Abram sins, even once, if he's not blameless, the penalty then falls on God himself because he took it on. Why does Jesus have to die? Because he chooses to be with us. From the moment of the fall, we invited sin into this world, brokenness, pain, and destruction. We were warned that it would bring death, would corrupt our relationship with God, not from his side, but from ours. From the first seconds, though, of Genesis 3, God pursues us. He calls us back to himself, giving us more, more and more direction and help along the way. Declaring I will do whatever it takes to get you back in right relationship with me. Including giving myself to be with you. Throughout the Old Testament, what we see is God giving us every chance to make things right. If you actually look at the progression of the Old Testament, what happens is that God is continually giving them the tools they need to live the kind of life he created them to live. And he keeps making it more straightforward and simpler. Ideally, he'd just like to walk with us and teach us along the way, we're not very good at that. So he says, okay, fine, I'll give you a, one nation to lead you in the midst of that. They messed that up. Okay, fine, I'm going to give you a law that spells out exactly how this is supposed to work. We messed that up. He then says, I'll get the Levites, so they are the only ones that have to learn the law. They'll teach the rest of the nation, we'll teach the rest of the world. We messed that up. He says, fine, I'll give you a group of judges who are going to help lead the the, the Levites, who are going to help lead the people who are going to teach the world how to walk with me, and we fail on that one. He goes, finally, fine, I'll give you one king, just your king. He's the person that has to do it. He'll teach the Levites to do their thing. The Levites will teach the people how to do their thing. Eventually, we'll all come back to walk with me, and we fail again. Throughout the Old Testament, what we see God doing is trying to accommodate us and trying to move towards us so that we can walk with him. I'll give you every chance to make things right, but when you fall or when you fail, I'll go all the way back to you and I'll give myself up for you. On Thursday night, we gathered together, a few of us gathered together here for Monday Thursday, which is the celebration of Jesus' Last Supper, the, the night that he's arrested, the, the beginning of, of, the, of his final moments leading up to Good Friday, which is the crucifixion and death. We closed our Thursday night with another symbol, the symbol of communion or the Lord's Supper, a ceremony which, in which we break bread in two, representing Christ's body broken for us, and we drink wine signifying Jesus' blood shed for us. Communion is a celebration of the fulfillment of the covenant of the Old Testament. God walks through the, path, the blood path in the middle, saying that if, you don't, if I don't keep my part, which he does, may this happen to me. Abram, if you don't take, keep your part, may this happen to me. The beginning of the story of Easter starts back in Genesis 15, in which God says, I will do whatever it takes to work my way back towards you. Jesus even uses the language in communion, this is my body broken for you, split in two for you. It's my blood as a sign of the covenant being fulfilled and the beginning of a new one. See, Jesus is the fulfillment of our passage in Genesis, the culmination of God's desire to overcome death, the death that comes in Genesis 3, Overcome our failure and find, overcoming our failure and trying to find our way back to him on our own. With even all of the different things that God had laid out for us to have a path back to him, we failed to find it. And so he says, fine, I'll walk all the way back to you. See, Good Friday is the culmination of humanity's failure to find our way back to God on our own. So if you were here Thursday night, I asked you to to sit in that space, to feel the weight of that load on your heart. That each time that we try to pursue God on our own, we tend to fall short. We tend to hurt ourselves. We tend to not... Uh, Accomplish what we went out to. And Thursday night, many of us sat with that, not to feel condemned, but instead to realize the significance of what actually happened on Good Friday. But we also said that though Thursday and Friday are dark, Sunday is coming. We look forward to Easter because it's a light that begins to grow, it's a light that begins to shine at the end of the tunnel. Good Friday is the fulfillment of the covenant that God made with Abram in Genesis 12. But Easter today is the beginning of something new, a new relationship, a new covenant. Because while Friday is dark, Sunday was coming, sin, broken relationships, failure to find our way back to God produces death. We see it throughout our story, throughout the Old Testament story. We might have even experienced it in our own life. Not because God is some kind of angry Zeus-like figure that wants to zap you, but because when we don't live into the kind of life we were created to live, it hurts us. Throughout the Old Testament, we, we see humanity trying to, on their own, work their way back to God, even as God is saying, here's the direction that we need to go. And we see failure over and over and over again. We saw it with Adam and Eve, with Cain, with Noah. We'll continue to see it even with Abraham. Isaac, and Jacob with the kings of the Old Testament. But while Friday is dark because Jesus takes the weight of death we had created upon himself, appearing as though death had won, on Sunday the tomb is empty. On Sunday it's revealed that death, that death in the fullness of its power, cannot win. On the contrary, Death suffers an epic defeat. We could not find our way back to God, so He found our way, His way to us. Easter is the symbolization, or Easter is the moment in which we, that we, our relationship with God can be righted. That even though He said, "Here's where I want you to go," we failed. He says, "Fine, I'll come back and get you." Easter Sunday is a celebration because it is finished. Throughout the Old Testament, God is calling humanity back to Himself, but then He, sh- he shows them the way and asks them to do. <clears throat> and asked them to walk it, but we couldn't. So Jesus then walks the path backwards to us. God walks the path for us so he, <clears throat> so he could find his way to us and, and, and actually walk with us out of it again, taking on the weight of our failure to walk with us out of death into life. The way that I picture it is the difference between, between God standing and saying, here's where we want you to go and here's how you get there, And God come and walking back to me and going, hey, let's go walk this together. Me with you, me close to you, me alongside of you. It's the language that we saw in the Old Testament, but it's also the language we see in the New. I'm going to read to you from Romans, where Paul takes everything we've talked about and kind of uh, frames it in a little bit different way. In Romans 8, it says, "There, therefore." Because of what Jesus did, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Whenever Paul is talking about that, the law is saying, that's the path, the instructions to say this is how we get our way back to God. That path didn't work for us because we couldn't follow it. The law of the Spirit is the exact opposite of that, is saying now the Spirit indwells you so we walk the path towards God together. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the sinful nature, by us, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful humanity to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in human flesh, in order that righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who did not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit you received did not make you slaves so that you could live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought, you into a, it brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Verse 26, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through, the, through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God and his people in accordance with God's will. So what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? For it's God who justifies. Who then can condemn? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors to him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the futures, nor any power, neither height nor death nor death, Depth or nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Paul beautifully captures everything that we talked about this morning. We celebrate Easter because Easter is the declaration that you all matter to God so much that even though you can't find your way back to Him on your own, He'll come to get you. That He wants to be with you and He wants to walk with you out of the kind of life that we've saw throughout the Old Testament. A life that in which we, when we strive to be the gods of our own lives, which we've seen throughout the book of Genesis, we fail over and over and over again. A life that where we create really weird things and God yet still comes to us and says, hey, I, there is a better way. Can I walk with you in it? The Old Testament is God directing us down our path and we see over and over and over again that failure is what defines us in that space. Easter Sunday, has said, your failure does not define you anymore. That the path that we walk, we walk together. The path that we walk was with me with you, to teach you and guide you and lead you, not in the relationship we were intended to have in the first place, in which we, can, which we stay in step with each other. Easter Sunday is a Sunday that we, we, we celebrate because it gives us a fresh and brand new start each and every day. Easter Sunday is the Sunday of hope because it says that you matter you're significant. You're important because God loves you. Easter Sunday is the day it says you can, If even if you had the worst day ever yesterday, we can do better tomorrow. Easter Sunday is the Sunday in which we said there is no longer any condemnation in Christ because nothing can separate us from his love. Easter Sunday is the day that we, can, we go out and express the new life that we found in those spaces to live a little bit more like the way that God created us to live, to bring a little bit more hope into a world that so desperately needs it. Not because we found the path, but because he found us and walks with us on it. Easter Sunday gives us something to look forward to, gives us the ability to to step out of guilt and shame and into the new life we were originally created to live in the first place. So my hope is today that you leave with that joy, that wherever you go from here, whether it's with family, whether you're just hanging out with whoever or by yourself, that you leave knowing that today is a new day and tomorrow is a new day and the day after that is a new day and the day after that is a new day because it is finished, because Jesus has already walked the path back to you and now desires more than anything to walk with you into the life that brings flourishing. Will you pray with me? Father God, we realize in so many different ways that we haven't kept up our end of the deal. That you desired to be with us and in so many different ways we just kept grabbing to be the gods of our own life. To do things our own way, to find the path ourselves and so often it's created hurt and hardship and pain and suffering. we just want to acknowledge that this morning that so many of us have fallen short in so many ways. And yet we celebrate the fact that though we couldn't find the path back to you on our own, even with you showing us the direction, you desired to be with us so much that throughout the Old Testament scriptures, you said, I will do anything to be with you. And we see that come to fruition on Easter. Thank you for meeting us in our brokenness. Paul also says in Romans, at just the right time, while we were still sinners, while we were still missing the mark, you died for us. So now we're more than conquerors. Lord, show us the way. Help us to live into the life that Easter represents. Amen.